1: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible
2: tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this episode on women and HIV and AIDS goes out to Brent. What up, Brent? Brent has been requesting this topic for so long. He has emailed us. He has Facebooked us. And Brent... We have listened and we have researched and we are so glad that you were so persistent in asking us to talk about this issue because it is very true that when it comes to HIV, women are often a footnote. Yeah. Um, and Caroline, can we start things off on a on a pop culture note? as always? Yes, please. okay, sure. So as I was reading about these uh, these issues, And thinking about the stigma surrounding HIV and just STDs in general, um, it reminded me of an episode of Sex in the City. And it's the episode titled Running with Scissors. And I know that because, yes, I have seen Sex in the City a zillion times. And it's the one where Samantha meets her alleged like sexual match, Tom Raimi. And so he also, you know, has had. A bazillion sexual partners, but before they can have sex, he's like, Samantha, you have to get tested
1: because I have to know that it's safe.
3: And Samantha's like, Oh, Tom, that's so terrifying. And there's this scene of Samantha getting her HIV test results and On the one hand, it's kind of comical because, you know, there there's the thing where the the nurse asks her, like, how many sexual partners have you had? And Samantha's like, I can't even count that high. (laughs) But then there's the waiting period when it's like, if this happens to Samantha, this is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to her. This means that she is, like, sexually off the market. She is a marked woman. And to me, that's just one glaring example of, the remaining stigma and misinformation around HIV, not the need to get STD and HIV tested, but around the the fallout from that.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, it is scary, and 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 it made me think of Reality Bites. Tanine Garofalo's character, who also has had multiple sexual partners and keeps a little black book listing all the names of the men she's had sex with, and she finally goes and gets tested at a clinic and it's it's really emotional and 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 watching her you know be so afraid in the waiting room feeling like oh my god you know my life could fall apart at any moment i you know my lifestyle has been uh you know a terrible thing leading me to this terrible point and it is really emotional and i mean i i i think it appropriately highlights the importance of getting tested. But similarly, it does depict HIV and AIDS as the worst possible death sentence that one could receive.
3: Well, and the shame surrounding it, too. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if the effect of those kinds of portrayals is to encourage other people like, you know what, I need to go out and I need to get tested as well. Or if it's like, I don't want to experience that. That is terrifying. I'm just not going to do it and pretend that everything's totally fine.
0: Well, I mean, they could also be products of their time. I mean, Reality Bites came out in what, 1994? Very true. So that's not at the start of the AIDS crisis, which emerged in the very early 80s. That would be more in the era, if you're looking at the different periods of time in people learning about and dealing with AIDS and HIV, 1994 would be right around the time that people start really talking about it and advocating for the health and safety of really everyone and to try to get more attention to possible treatments.
3: And it is good that there were portrayals of women going to get tested because like we said, in the U S HIV and AIDS have long been portrayed as health issues, pretty much exclusive to white gay men. Mm -hmm. But in fact, 50 to 55% of HIV positive people around the world are women. And because we keep saying HIV slash AIDS, let's also take a moment to explain exactly what these two things are and differentiate between the two? Well, first of
0: all, your symptoms can differ both from person to person and gender to gender. Uh, So that's worth noting. And yes, you can be asymptomatic. So what
3: happens when the HIV virus enters the bloodstream? So your immune system gets to work producing HIV antibodies. And then within the first 45 days, that process is referred to as seroconversion, and after the antibodies get to work, you actually feel better. I mean, you can feel better for up to, like, 10 years feel better, because keep in mind, this can also be asymptomatic. But all the while, kind of the way that when you get chickenpox, it can hang around and later turn into shingles— the HIV virus is actually replicating and slowly destroying your immune system because what it does is actually integrate into infected cells' genomes. And because immune systems then become so weakened because of HIV, we're far more susceptible to bacterial infections and fungal diseases that your body could normally fight. These are called opportunistic Infections. So when that happens, when your immune system essentially collapses, that is when HIV transitions to being labeled as AIDS. And because in the United States, the AIDS crisis predominantly affected gay male communities. And because of the extreme homophobia at the time, AIDS was very much stigmatized and its patients were dehumanized because already because due to the homophobia, these gay men had been dehumanized and stigmatized just on their own. So Ashley Fetters over the, at the Atlantic traced how our perceptions and portrayals of HIV and AIDS has developed through pop culture because pop culture has been used to destigmatize and humanize. Illnesses, Although when it comes to AIDS, it's also been highly gendered. So if we go back to like the 19th century, you have authors like Charles Dickens and Victor Hugo who actually humanized tuberculosis patients who otherwise were just seen as this, you know, horrible group of people that you should just stay away from because they're contagious and you'll die. And Fetters points out that Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Did similar things in terms of humanizing uh, people of color and drawing attention to racism and slavery. So pop culture has done that also over time with HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And so when in
0: 1981, the AIDS virus first starts to gain widespread attention. There's a lot of confusion at first as to what it is. Uh, A New York Times article, uh, for instance, was headlined, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. They called it Kaposi's Sarcoma. And CDC spokesman Dr. James Curran said the best evidence against contagion is that no cases have been reported to date outside the homosexual community. Or in women. So right off the bat, we have health professionals establishing that this is a gay man
3: thing. Well, and then that also, of course, fuels more conservative bigotry saying like, oh, here's proof that being gay is such a sin because now they're essentially being smited for that.
0: Yeah. And writing about this crisis, which left behind so many friends friends. Family members and particular romantic partners um it it was interesting to see the way that the media started to cover those partners who were left behind. For instance, the New York Times would also refer to gay men who survived their partners uh, as longtime companions rather than dignifying them as saying boyfriend or partner or anything like that. They opted to go the long time companion route very euphemistically, to the point where there was even a movie made in the 80s called Longtime Companion about a couple dealing with this issue.
3: So it was first reported, like you said, in 1981, and by the time we get to 1991, the year that Magic Johnson um, came out publicly as being HIV positive, which I still remember mm-hmm. seeing that press conference. That happened that year. Anita Hill happened that year. 1991 wow. was a doozy. Um, but By the end of that year, in the U.S. alone, there had been over 206,000 cases of AIDS reported to date. And of those, 156,143 people, mostly gay men, had died. So, I mean, this was a full-blown epidemic, and it was concentrated in the gay community. And Caroline, we should probably go back at some point and do an episode focusing in on the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, but we're really focusing today, obviously, on women and HIV and AIDS because it really took over a decade for AIDS related pop culture and even art to recognize the disease's reach beyond gay men. So I guess maybe one of the earliest um, instances would have been that reality bites scene.
0: Well, yeah. And even so, though, that character was still a straight white woman. So still in this conversation, we're lacking women of color who we will discuss as being disproportionately affected by AIDS and HIV um, and lesbians.
3: And the erasure of the roles that many lesbians played during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s is partially attributed to the fact that we are only recently in our mainstream, paying more attention to and researching more and learning more about our LGBTQ history in the Mm -hmm. United States. Um, But even still, as Marsha Bianco writes about IndieWire, the longstanding pop cultural portrayal of it as a gay cancer um, has perpetuated this idea that it was only white gay men not only affected, but also who were the activists right? protesting, you know, the lack of health care around it. Well, and, activists and also people who were just there helping. Exactly. I mean, and we even see that in more recent on-screen portrayals as well. Yeah, there's this movie, The Normal Heart on HBO, uh,
0: that was about this crisis and about gay men suffering in the midst of the AIDS crisis. And it contained only one lesbian character and briefly contained that lesbian character who tells these guys she's I believe her friend had just died. And she tells these guys that she wants to help in any way, quote, even though all my lesbian friends say, what have you guys done for us? Which, of course, paints lesbians across the board Amid this AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s as bitter and resentful and not wanting to even help those who were affected and dying.
3: And uh, Lillian Faderman, who is a lesbian scholar and author of The Gay Revolution, points out how in the 1970s, yeah, there was some legit acrimony between the gay and lesbian communities. I mean, we've talked before, like in our uh, Lavender Menace episode, in our episode about radical feminism, there were separatist lesbians who really wanted nothing to do with any men, regardless of sexual orientation. Um, and in fact, there were plenty of lesbian feminists who didn't consider gay men any less chauvinistic, than straight men. However, as Faderman underscores, in the 80s, when the AIDS epidemic hits, that rancor really dissolved because there simply wasn't time for it. These men were dying so quickly.
0: Yeah. So you had lesbians who were doing everything from starting food banks to working in hospitals, whether as nurses. So you had women who there are stories of women quitting higher paying jobs to go work in hospitals as nurses or they were simply there as visitors to hold hands, uh, they worked to clean up men's houses that had essentially been abandoned since they'd been hospitalized. And these men themselves had been abandoned by friends and families in a lot of cases. And they provided comfort in hospice. And a lot of these women, these lesbian women, had to take on a lot of misdirected rage and bitterness at the time from men who were you know, in dire straits, they were in despair, they were sick, scared and alone. And gay men and lesbians at this time had a history of gender based division.
3: Yeah. And those nuances um, to what was going on at the time is something that uh, producer Sarah Shulman, who produced the documentary United in Anger, a history of ACT UP, and that's ACT UP all caps because the ACT UP is uh, or was a uh, AIDS activism group. Um, Shulman has critiqued the recent documentary How to Survive a Plague for really overlooking or glossing over that kind of coalition activism that was happening and um, really focusing on this group of five men that it sort of uplifts as The exclusive heroes, whereas in reality, Shulman points out, and as uh, the documentary United in Anger demonstrates, there was much more bridge building happening. I mean, speaking of that coalition building, I
0: mean, these narratives of it's all a gay man's problem, particularly a white gay man's problem, ignores the fact, the very real fact that there were not only women there helping And comforting and caring for gay men, but also men who were stepping up and saying, we need to count women. We need to test women for AIDS and HIV. They need to be included in this research, in these numbers and in any discussion of health and safety.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, you you had gay men also protesting for the CDC to expand its definition of HIV and AIDS, which was limited only to men because really up until then there was a complete unawareness of HIV transmission rates via lesbian sex or female to female sex um, because the medical community just wasn't concerned about it. They mm-hmm. assumed that it just didn't exist, wasn't a possibility. And in fact, it's only been in the past few years that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has confirmed that, yes, indeed, HIV can be transmitted through same-sex sex between women.
0: Yeah, and this whole medical marginalization reflected a broader misunderstanding of lesbian lifestyles and sexuality uh, that could include uh, IV drug use, uh, imprisonment, rape, and in some cases, consensual sex with male partners, that there are so many different ways that people can be infected. And until the early 90s, the CDC's definition of AIDS was based off of its pathology in the male immune system. And I already mentioned that AIDS and HIV functions differently in women. These infections that were showing up in men didn't always happen in women. And so that means it's the same thing that we see nowadays with heart disease, that heart of t- heart attacks manifest differently in women than men. If you don't know you have it or you don't know what to look for or you don't know what safety practices to take, et cetera, that equates to no treatment. That equates to not being counted. And that equates then to fewer resources and the cycle
3: continues of medical marginalization. So ACT UP, that activist organization that uh, Sarah Schulman uh, documented in United in Anger, its slogan was women don't get AIDS. They just die from it. And again, this was something, too, that activists not only had to protest and push for with the medical community, but also fought back and forth within the LGBTQ community at large, because you did have some lesbian AIDS activists who were frustrated by some lingering misogyny that some gay men would exhibit toward them to ignore the fact that lesbians were part of this issue, too, and the fact, too, that, that women were often shoved to the side in some of these AIDS activism groups. So intersectionality was not exactly top of mind, but also kind of understandable considering the cultural climate and also just the level of crisis. Yeah. So now that we've had. 30 years of AIDS research and we understand far more about it now than we did in the 80s we want to talk about the situation with women in HIV and AIDS today and we'll get into that when we come right back from a quick break
0: Every mom is unique, and we would not want to change a single thing about them. And I know with Mother's Day right around the corner, you know, flowers are going to die. My mom doesn't need another picture frame. What do I get her? I should probably get her something as delicious and special as she is, and that's Sherry's berries. Right now, you can get Sherry's Freshly Dipped Berries starting at $19.99 plus shipping or double the strawberries for just $10 more. This is an exclusive offer for Sminty listeners. You just go to berries.com, click on the microphone in the top right corner, and type in our code
3: works? That's all separate words. And by taking advantage of this exclusive offer, you're going to be sending your mom, or hey, you can send them to yourself as well, a delicious box of berries dipped in milk, white, and dark chocolatey goodness, topped with rich chocolate chips, chopped nuts, and signature swizzles. And I can personally attest to the fact that cherries berries are delectable. So again, this is the only way to get an amazing deal starting at 19.99 for freshly dipped strawberries or double the berries for just $10 more. So use our offer code HowStuffWorks when you visit berries.com, which is B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on that microphone in the top right corner and type in HowStuffWorks. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter code HowStuffWorks. This is a limited-time offer, and Mother's Day is around the corner, so make sure to order now. And now back to the show. So women and HIV is something, Caroline, that we have absolutely needed to address. Brent was right. Brent, I really hope you're listening to this episode, Um, because data from the Kaiser Foundation and CDC show that 20% of new HIV diagnoses in the U.S. are women, 84% of whom are women who contract HIV from sex with a man.
0: Yeah, and just 13% of those infections were attributed to IV drug use, which is sort of a flip-flop of statistics from 30 years earlier. And they found that these diagnoses are mostly occurring with women in the 25 to 34-year-old age range. And this translates that 20% figure to 9,500 new cases among women in 2010 alone. And it is interesting that and important to note that women are most likely to contract it through sex with a man um, because the risk of getting HIV during vaginal sex is way higher for women than it is for men. But regardless, anal sex is still riskier overall for contracting the
3: virus. And the thing is, of women living in the U.S., 11 percent of those with HIV don't know they have it. And this is so common for STDs in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, herpes can be asymptomatic for a long time. Um, It's it's. Uh, HIV similarly can be asymptomatic. And speaking of herpes, contracting other STDs and STIs also increases your likelihood of contracting HIV. And when that happens, women also tend to face steeper challenges accessing care due to factors like socioeconomics, family responsibilities, cultural inequalities, sexual violence, um, and clinical symptoms and complications that, again, differ from male epidemiology.
0: And it's also worth noting that, yes, STDs increase your likelihood of contracting HIV, but HIV also increases your chances of getting HPV, which goes back to what Kristen was saying at the top of the podcast as far as this virus leaving you open
3: to more infections. And because of those healthcare challenges that women tend to face, just 41% of HIV positive women in the U.S. receive regular healthcare. So clearly this is something that needs more attention and focus, not just on the individual level, but also from the healthcare community. And if we then drill down and talk about stigma it is very real. Um, a 2004 study in the Journal of Nursing Scholarship found that gender intensifies that HIV stigma, considering how it has been painted in the U.S. as, again, a white gay man's disease. So it's like this idea that, oh, if you're an HIV positive woman, like, What's wrong with you? Like yeah. double what's wrong with you? And
0: oh, I mean women do internalize that stigma. I mean these things don't exist in a vacuum. There was a 2016 study in social work healthcare that found that among pregnant women, that stigma intensified when seeking perinatal care. So these women, you're almost pregnant or not, you're almost afraid to even ask to, to even broach the subject and ask your doctor about getting tested. And a 2015 study on HIV-positive women from 94 countries around the world found that 84% reported depression and 78% reported rejection. And their rate of mental health problems is three and a half times higher after HIV
3: diagnosis. And all of those factors are compounded by socially disadvantaged identities. So this is the part where we talk about how women of color are disproportionately affected By HIV and AIDS. Um, And this data is coming from AMFAR and the CDC, which finds that black women are 23 times likelier to be diagnosed with HIV, and Latino women are five times likelier to be diagnosed with HIV compared to white women. And this is a disproportionate representation compared to their population proportion. So for instance, women of color in the U.S. represent 29% of the U.S. female population, but account for 84% of female AIDS cases. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And 60% of women living with HIV in this country are black. And according to the black women's health imperative, HIV and AIDS related illnesses are the number one Cause of death among black women ages 25 to
3: 44. And there's also a regional concentration of these HIV cases because 76% of women newly diagnosed with HIV live in the South, likely due to socioeconomic issues of high poverty, low public health access, and low education. Compounding that, you also have uh, communities with high incarceration rates, economic instability, low marriage rates and sexual violence, all of which correlate to higher HIV transmission rates. So these racial disparities in a lot of ways are very much a civil rights issue.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it highlights, among many things, the fact that our education and healthcare systems are failing these women and failing all of us. I mean. This is why I mean, this is one of the many reasons why when I hear about either abstinence only sex ed or I hear about the fact that there are so many states in this country where educators aren't even legally required to give accurate and truthful information it just makes me cringe on my deepest, deepest core level because, I mean, look look at these numbers that we've just read to you. Women are dying. Women are dying and women, especially in communities that don't have the same level of access to education and health care and who are suffering from socioeconomic related issues. These women are dying in a disproportionate in disproportionate numbers. And it makes me sick.
3: Well, and it also goes to show, too, uh, an often hidden layer to uh, sexual violence and domestic abuse, mm-hmm. which, again, is correlated to that higher transmission rate as well. Um If we look at the Latina population, um, 17% of women in the U.S. living with HIV are Latina. And in fact, uh, 5.5% of HIV positive Latinas are over 55, which is um, an outlier versus the general HIV plus population, which tends to be in their 20s and early 30s. And the higher rate, though, of HIV among Latinas is attributed to lower condom usage. Again, when you don't have that safe sex education and safe sex culture happening, this can increase the likelihood of uh, transmission. And you also, too, I mean, this is a tangent, but you also, too, have the thing of, well, he doesn't like wearing condoms.
0: Yeah, which which is not limited to the Latina community. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Means. No, no, no.
3: Um, but if we look at new diagnoses, they are fastest growing among Native Americans. Between nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety nine, uh new HIV diagnoses were up eight hundred percent among is them.
0: Insane. That's insane. We need we need education around this. And When you add gender identity on top of this, that is also a huge factor in HIV rates and diagnoses in the United States. There was a 2009 National Institutes of Health report that found that nearly a third of trans Americans are HIV positive. And that number could be higher because a lot of people in general,
3: but a lot of people in the trans community, too, don't know their status. And in fact, trans women have the highest HIV rates. In the U.S. Um, And again, trans women of color, even more affected. Uh, 56% of black transgender women are HIV positive and 16% of Latina trans women are HIV positive. And one thing that might hold trans women back from taking antiretrovirals are fears of it interfering with hormone therapy, not to mention HIV medications. Are expensive. And when you weigh out that cost in the context of the extreme poverty and homelessness that many trans women face, these transmission rates start to unfortunately make sense. And this was something that a transgender woman named uh, Miss Major talked about to Senevi Brighton over at HIV Plus magazine.
0: Yeah. Major, who's an advocate in her community, says we have to scrounge for housing and it puts us in the street at night to cover what we need to cover during the day. It's kind of like a merry-go-round that we're on and it's difficult to stay HIV negative. And there's also the issue of sex work. So there's a four times higher rate of contracting HIV through sex work for trans sex workers compared to cisgender sex workers. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people's gut reaction to that is to be like well don't be a sex worker but one thing that miss major among others addressed in this article was that a lot of times sex work is the avenue that is open to not only trans women but to marginalized people who have no other way to make a living they maybe don't have the same avenues to a job that can give them a living wage
3: and If a trans woman is incarcerated, there is a good chance that she will also be locked up with cisgender men, which could put her at a higher risk for uh, rape and sexual violence, which again increases the likelihood of HIV transmission. Um, but HIV outreach often leaves transgender patients out, targeting instead gay and bisexual cisgender men. So there's obviously more activism that needs to keep happening because this isn't just something that is the relic of a bygone era in the 80s. But we got to bust some myths.
0: Yeah, because this is how you keep the conversation going. And this is how you push advocacy and activism is educating people.
3: And also putting the facts out there to maybe make STD testing less scary so first, let's talk about how HIV is not transmitted. Um, insect bites, toilet seats, kissing, sharing cutlery, and simply touching does not put you at risk for contracting HIV.
0: Yeah, HIV can't survive outside the body, in water, on surfaces, on musical instruments. So if there is a tuba lying around, don't worry. And the education and outreach group AVERT, which, by the way, was founded in 1986, so it's one of the first AIDS and HIV awareness groups out there, they explain the five main ways that HIV-infected bodily fluids can pass from person to person. And those body fluids, by the way, include blood, semen, vaginal or anal secretions, and breast milk. Those fluids do not include sweat, tears, urine, or feces. Uh, but they can pass from person to person through unprotected sex, pregnancy and breastfeeding, intravenous drug use, infected blood donation or organ transplant. That organ transplant thing was an issue for Arthur Ashe. That's how he contracted HIV and accidental contact in a healthcare
3: setting. So things like mutual masturbation and digital penetration is totally safe. But it is recommended to use uh, condoms on sex toys if you have multiple partners. And the thing that we've probably honestly waited too long to emphasize in this podcast, because uh, there is a lot of stigma around this, is the fact that it is not a death sentence. Um, Getting infected fluid, first of all, from an HIV positive person doesn't guarantee that you will get HIV thanks to medication and past exposure prophylaxis. Um, And even if both partners are HIV positive, they should still practice safe sex to uh, limit the risk of reinfection. And of course, disclosure is extremely important if you are HIV positive. And it's highly, highly, highly manageable. Um, Thanks to antiretroviral medications, the risks of passing HIV to a sexual partner are dramatically lower. And ditto that for reinfecting an HIV positive partner. And
0: further good news about those antiretroviral medications is that women on those medications who get pregnant they lower the risk of the baby being born with HIV to 2%. But some physicians still urge women to opt for formula instead of breastfeeding just to be safe.
3: And if you are dating someone who's HIV positive, there are medications that also drastically lower your risk of uh, contracting HIV. And this is called pre-exposure prophylaxis or Prep, And if you have ever listened to Dan Savage's podcast, Savage Love, or read any of his columns, you've probably heard about PrEP. Um, And basically, um, an HIV negative partner would take this every day and an HIV negative single person. You don't have to be in a relationship to take PrEP, um, but you take it every day and it lowers that HIV risk. By ninety-two to ninety-nine percent, and it's hmm. probably closer to ninety-nine percent. And in fact, independent studies confirm its effectiveness. But there's still slut-shaming stigma around prep, even within the gay male community. This whole thing of like, "Oh, are you single and taking prep?" Hmm. Okay, you must uh, you must really be pretty pretty loose in the boots. I don't know that anyone says loose in the boots, by the way. <laughs> ah,
0: loosen the boots. Um, well, but I also just saw a headline that said that people there is an alarming, alarmingly low rate of condom use among people who are taking prep. So it's almost like prep is is obviously important and and i I would encourage people to use it. Obviously, you don't need me to encourage you. Um, but it's another one of those things where when you increase people's comfort level, they're more, I guess, quick to let their guard down. And in this case,
3: literally. So I would
0: please use condoms. Is yeah. What I have to
3: say. Well, put on condoms and leave off the stigma, because I think that the, one of the biggest upsides to the pre and post exposure prophylaxis is the manageability of living with HIV and being healthy and having a literally healthy relationship with a partner. But if you're taking any kind of PrEP medication, I think that should be okay, too. That's That's part of a safe sex arsenal, and there shouldn't be any shame in that. In the same way that we have moralized STIs in general, So that if you contract one, you are automatically a dirty, shameful, wrong and broken person. You take an HIV diagnosis and that stigma and just like explode it by Mm 10,000, you know, and that's one of the biggest takeaways that I hope people listening will grasp is that AIDS is not a death sentence that people who are HIV positive are not just walking contagions and that they aren't bad people, that having HIV or AIDS does not make you a bad person. So while, of course, we will always advocate for using condoms and getting regularly tested and being smart and safe and consensual with our sex, whether you're having it monogamously or with so many people you can't even keep count, like Samantha on Sex in the City, we need to destigmatize these viruses and infections and diseases.
0: Yeah, because the less stigma, the less afraid
3: people will be to get tested. Yeah. And probably the more funding and medical research it will get as well. So folks, Brent especially, we want to know your thoughts about this. And if you are someone living with HIV or living with a partner who has HIV and you want to talk to us about it, we will absolutely respect your anonymity so you don't have to worry about that at all. Um, But we really want to know your thoughts about this. And also if there are older listeners who lived through that AIDS crisis in the eighties, um, and witnessed everything that was going on and all of those, the death that was happening. We'd love to hear your insights as well. MomStuff at com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break.
0: Going to the post office is so old school, Kristen. Why would you ever leave your house when you can just use your newfangled computer machine? And that, my friends, is why more than 600,000 small businesses are already using the fancy and high-tech stamps.com. You can get postage right from your desk whenever you need it, 24 hours a day. Because stamps.com is like a space machine that turns your computer and printer into a virtual post office. And Stamps.com, come on, it's the better way to do all of your mailing and shipping. It's so easy to use and so convenient, and it lets you focus your time where you want it, on building a spaceship, I mean on growing a business. No wonder $2.6 billion in postage
3: was printed just last year alone using Stamps.com. And right now, if you sign up for Stamps.com, you can use our promo code stuff. For a special offer, it's a four week trial with a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in stuff. That's stamps.com. Enter stuff. And now back to the show.
0: Well, I have a letter here from Christina in response to our tanning episode. Uh, she says, love your podcast. I really enjoyed your episode on tanning. I'm originally from the U.S., but I live in the Middle East now, and here we have a different scene entirely. Tanning is not in. You guys mentioned that at one point in the U.S., whitening substances were added to skin products to make skin lighter. Well, in much of the world, that custom is still alive and well. Here in the Middle East, ladies are wise to double-check the label of any lotion or even deodorant because many of them contain skin lighteners. From what I've seen in my travels, the same is true in many countries. White skin in much of Asia is still seen as the ideal of beauty. Check out almost any Bollywood movie for evidence. The actors are usually much lighter skin than most of the population in India, which goes back to your discussion of pop culture and its effects on beauty ideals. Or is it the beauty ideals that reflect in the pop culture? Thanks so much for your time and keep the awesomeness coming.
3: Thank you, Christina. So I've got a letter here from Nicole, who is a spray tan business owner. And she writes, I just finished your great podcast on spray tans. And as a spray tan specialist and owner of a mobile spray tanning business, I can assure you that I've seen it all. And she says she's been doing it for four years. And she always gets the same reaction when she tells people what she does. You see naked people all day? My answer is yes I do, but I no longer look at the human body as a naked being, but more of a canvas I'm trying to perfectly paint. With this job comes lots of funny and entertaining stories, but making people feel more comfortable with their bodies really is what makes my day i also find it hard to get the younger generation to believe the facts on skin cancer and aging skin so thank you ladies for educating the public on skin health and sun protection well thank you nicole for giving us the inside scoop on spray tanning and listeners if you want to email us as well momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about HIV, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.